Well, good day to you. It's Joel with the King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. On this week's episode of Where We Are, we'll unpack some audio files from the 2024 campaign trail. I think we're going to have a pretty a busy next few weeks with candidates jumping in this race. We'll talk about it. You're listening to Where We Are. This is Where We Are. We are the Where's. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hello. What's up? Oh, not much. Still not walking, but feeling better. I started PT this week, and uh, my uh, my ankle is at least 300% more flexible. I am able to uh, wiggle my toes with a bit more uh, agility and, and uh, uh, showiness to them. You uh, want to see some real speed? <laughs> That's you. Uh, and yeah, no, things, things are moving. Uh, the book is coming along well, mm-hmm. just wrapping up edits. And so th- things are things are moving, Melissa. How are you doing? Fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're, we're making it. Yeah, we're making it. We're making it. Uh, we have a collection of audio files for this week's episode. We had so much fun talking with Demir last week. Um, and really enjoyed the morning five uh, throughout the week. Particularly, I was, honestly, I was looking through the news on Wednesday night. And I was just like, you know, yeah, yes, there, of course, there are always significant things going on around the world. But, uh, but I think for my own spirit, and I just uh, decided to read about 10 minutes, of the last like five paragraphs from C.S. Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory. And oh, man, that thing cooks. Uh, so you could listen to that episode of The Morning Five. Uh, morning five, as always, brought to you by the That Sounds Fun Network. We're so grateful for our friends at at the That Sounds Fun Network. Um, oh, Melissa, I I don't think we've talked on no, where we, we are. I was about to say something about yes. two things. One, yes, my book we uh it has a has a title. I don't think we've talked about that. Yeah, anymore. we've talked about that. Oh, we have. Everybody knows about that. But I don't think anybody knows. Well, not everybody, and that's that's we'll work on that. Okay, so we <laughs> we have covered that, but there is something else, and I know what you're going to say. What is the something else? On Substack, we have joined our branding because Michael and I have a brand, um, and it is now the Where We Are Substack. So we've matched up our name with the podcast with our name on Substack. So whenever you search for Where We Are, you should see both those things show up at the top. 
Um, we're excited about it, and now everything's lined up. We are also on YouTube now. Oh. So every Sunday episode will be posted to YouTube, and at some point, if I have the wherewithal, I might be able to start posting the Morning 5 each day on YouTube. But for now, every Sunday episode will show up on YouTube. So if that's like a platform that you prefer, we now have it. You will get every Sunday episode there. If you need closed captions for these types of episodes, you can get them on YouTube. So that's great as well. Um, yeah, so those were two exciting things. Yeah, very exciting. We're, we're consolidating. Yep, consolidating. Consolidating. Uh, so if you want to support where we are, you don't have to worry about podcasts, whatever. It's all under one, one umbrella now. Uh, and so uh, you could go to now it is the new link where we are dot substack.com it is where we are dot substack.com and if you happen to accidentally type in reclaiming hope dot substack.com it will transfer over because I did that with substack hey wow that's exciting yeah it was nice that they allow that okay and so Substack has notes now too so if like you're getting tired of Twitter substack has notes and it's been going great we've yeah. been posting notes on there and it's been a great community well you know I sometimes get nostalgic. I may sometimes just type in reclaiminghope.substack.com just for the just for the feels. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, you just in a nutshell. Just to you know, Feel go something. back. Go back to the days. Um <laughs> all right, let's let's jump in. Um the Democratic side uh, is clarifying reports over the last few days that a final decision and game plan was decided upon when President Biden returned from his trip to Ireland, Uh, which, by the way, is there anything more Joe Biden than being like, I needed to be in Ireland before I, I before I could finally, (laughs) before I could like make the final decision. Like he'd been saying for months that uh, he was likely to run, da da da, but I love the, I love the idea that like, that he had to he had to go to Ireland and then be like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> no, but here's the thing: while in Northern, while in Ireland, um, on his last day there, he went to a shrine um, where one of the priests there was the priest who gave his son Bo Biden, who passed away a few years ago. Final rights. That yeah. priest gave um, Bo his final rights, and um, Biden got to meet him. So I would not be surprised if that was also like. Something oh, I'm sure it was really we, meaningful. We know the story that Bo really encouraged his dad to run for president. Yeah. So, so we don't know exactly when the announcement is going to be. It appears uh, possible, if not likely, that a, a video announcement will roll out on Tuesday, which would be the four-year mark of when Biden announced uh, four years ago um, uh, his his presidential run four years ago. And so be on the lookout for potentially an announcement video on Tuesday. Uh, We have a pretty firm sense that no one's getting in this race. Uh, No significant uh, uh, opponent is getting in this race. The DNC has already said they don't plan on holding debates. And so uh, and so the not so serious candidates who've gotten in the race, including as of this past week, Robert uh, Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., um, uh, there won't be a debate stage, uh, uh, at least not one the DNC is sponsoring, at least not a, an official Democratic 
party uh, debate stage. And so uh, that's the Democratic side. And we'll get a sense of, I mean, we've talked on this podcast. There have been moments, most obviously the State of the Union, but also some different speeches and sets of remarks since then where we've said, you know, this is sort of trying out some re-election case-making sort of material. We'll see what uh, what rose to be the cream of the crop or, or sort of what, what, what they open with in this announcement mm-hmm. this week. Obviously, it will be interesting to track the development of the campaign on the Democratic side, but far more interesting... Of course. ...is the Republican side. Uh, and so let's... Let's start. We we could we could almost we could do it like a little sort of like surprise. Uh, <laughs> which which potential GOP candidate are we is gonna is gonna is gonna Rough play next? next. Um, so yeah, let's let's start with uh, let's start with this. Will you make a hard decision by late June? Oh, I, I, th- I think anyone that would be serious about seeking the Republican nomination uh, would need to be in this contest uh, by June. And, so you uh, will make a decision by late June? I, I think if, if we have an announcement to make, uh, whether it'll be well before late June. Well before. At this point, everyone here is wondering, as I'm talking to voters here in Iowa, they say, okay, former Vice President Pence hasn't decided yet. But are you leaning in or are you leaning away from running? Well, I'm here in Iowa, Robert. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Love that so much. That was former Vice President uh, Mike Pence in an interview uh, uh, for Face the Nation. And look, we've, we've talked on... The pod before, we're going to have to talk about it a lot more uh, as as Pence decides to run, and I expect that he will. Um, he is in Iowa, after all. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I just think he's, he's in an impossible spot, Melissa. I, I think the, the pathway for a successful... Mike Pence nomination was uh, uh, campaign was if Trump decided not to run in 24. And that way, Pence doesn't have to worry about how do you make a case against the presumptive front runner and how do you get the benefits of being the previous Republican president's running mate. Now he's in this. He's in this position that at least makes him seem to be like fundamentally dishonest. The, the more that he makes a case against Trump, he seems to convict himself. And the more that he tries to extol the benefits of the Trump administration, he seems to be having it in both ways or trying to have it both ways. I just don't think it's a needle that you can thread, especially when, I mean, this would all be a backdrop of, this would this would all be difficult if 
he was running and Trump wasn't in the race, with Trump in the race, it makes it near impossible. I, Melissa, I think like, I could be, I'm, I don't mean to completely count Pence out. It's a long campaign. We'll see how it develops. He obviously has significant name ID. Um, he has a lot of trust among social conservative groups, but I, I really think like the the pathway at this point is Trump falls to pieces. Uh, something something happens that takes Trump out of the race, and Pence is just sort of like the the safest option. Uh, I I I'm, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen, but that's the most likely way that Pence ends up with nomination. Melissa, what do you think about Mike Pence and and his uh, his his chances of 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 being successful? I I think about this with pretty much any of the potential candidates that are still thinking about jumping in. I think about this with you know Nikki Haley being uh, announced already, Asa Hutchinson being announced already, and. It seems like even after, you know, eight years that various, you know, conservative and social social conservative groups have not been able to coalesce around messaging and approach against somebody like Donald Trump. Um, they tried, you know, several months ago after the midterms with, you know, the, the, the sort of lackluster wins that they had for the House and, you know, not taking back the Senate. There was a bit of a cohesive narrative going around how Trump is weak, Trump is not our candidate, we, you know, we've dropped him sort of thing, and the media caught that, ate it up. But now we have the media saying that Ron DeSantis, who is not even announced yet, saying that, oh, has he peaked already? Oh, he's way, he's too weak. Oh, you know, tr Trump is on the up and up because of this, um, the indictment in, from the New York AG. And so it seems like no matter what happens, Trump and the media coverage around him seems to always be able to prop himself up. They prop him up. And so I just don't know the route that many of these candidates can take that can take hold. But then again, if I were like the social conservative groups, I'd be trying to coalesce now, not only around messaging, but making decision and saying, this is our guy. So how are we going to push, or this is our woman. This is how we're going to push them. Um, Pence, yeah. I mean, the, the race, the, the field has to, has to come together. What was interesting this week was you did see Susan B. Anthony List come out with a pretty direct, with, with not pretty, with direct opposition to uh, President Trump, saying that if he didn't change his position, that uh, that abortion should now be a state's rights issue. Uh, they said that that was an untenable position for a Republican nominee, and so that's. That's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting development. But again, you get to this point where you know, okay, to get back to Pence, okay, so Pence is going to say Donald Trump's current position on abortion is no longer, uh, is is not up to task. But it's like you were this guy's running mate, <laughs> you know, uh, no one. Propped up this guy that you're now trying to run against more than you did for four years. 
plus. Uh, and so it, I think it's just a very difficult, difficult, um, difficult context for, for, for Pence to, to run in. But the man has clearly wanted to be president for a long time. And, and, and this is, it looks like the opportunity he's going to take to run. The, the, what I, where I'll close with Pence is uh, he he came out after Susan B. Anthony came out. He sh- sort of critiqued Trump's position on abortion, and what did sort of what what is clear to me is if Pence decided to stay out of the race and instead be a forceful critic of Trump as the guy Trump picked to be his VP and for Pence to sort of offer uh, the, an inside perspective about why Trump can't be elected again, why there's a better Republican option. Pence could have a tremendously powerful role in this campaign if he threw his weight behind someone else potentially even more significant than running himself. I wonder if he'll be thinking about that. And I kind of wonder, we'll get to him, but, you know, wonder I, if Tim Scott... I was about to say, are you thinking Tim Scott? You yeah. wonder if Tim 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 Scott um, would, would be in a position to cast that that kind of vision for Pence's future. But but my, my guess is Pence personally can't settle for anything less than than, than president and, and taking a shot at the presidency. I think that's why he was willing to serve as Trump's VP to begin with. And so even with all the reports about the reservations that Pence always had about Trump, the reservations that his wife had about Trump, All right, let's. Uh, I could talk about Pence for for a while. Let, let let's let's move on. Who's next? Who's next? Well, so this is interesting. Mm-hmm. So this clip. So I, we actually won't surprise you with this one because I, I need to tee it up a bit. Chris Christie has been suggesting maybe he'd run for president. He was at Semaphore this last week, and I'm playing this not so much. We'll see if Chrissy jumps in, and and he's been a, a very visible figure on TV over the last, you know, four years, and you know he's he's a formidable politician in 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 some in some ways, uh, but I'm playing this mostly for the criticism he has of another potential candidate. Let's let's play the clip. I don't. I think Ron DeSantis is a conservative based on his actions towards Disney. I mean, you know, where are we headed here now um, that if you express disagreement in this country, the government is allowed to punish you? To me, that's what I always thought liberals did. And now all of a sudden, here we are participating in this with a Republican governor. And the second piece of it is, like, part of the, I'm all for the use, the appropriate use of governmental power to achieve laudable goals. 
And when you're the governor of a state and our governorship is constitutionally the most powerful governorship of the country, the New Jersey governorship has enormous authority. And I loved using the levers of that authority to be able to accomplish things. But when you put someone in that position or like a position of president, um, if you're going to use those levers, you've got to look around the corners to see what the result of that will be. For him to have taken the action he took against Disney and to not have foreseen that Disney was going to do what they did in response, which was to completely take over the millions and millions of acres and the zoning decisions of that before they got the authority. Well, I'll tell you this much. That's not the guy I want sitting across from President Xi and negotiating our next agreement with China or sitting across from Putin and trying to resolve what's happening in Ukraine if you can't see around a corner that Bob Iger created for you. I mean, I don't think that's very imposing. And the last piece of what he said yesterday. Um, this is just for our audience online about building a prison next to Disneyland. Or a competing yeah, amusement yeah, park. Right. Or whatever. Look, sometimes in politics, you just have to admit when you screwed up and you got taken. It happens. It's hard to admit it because it happens to you on a public stage. And everybody gets to see your mistake. But if you're not used to that, then don't get in this business. You can go into private business and make your mistakes privately, and only the closest people to you will know. Now he's doubling down. I mean, you know, why do you want to punish a place that creates enormous tax revenue for your state, enormous tourism for your state, um, and you want to punish them because they disagree with you? I mean, I, look, I think everyone should have the freedom in this country to disagree with something that government does. And my job as the leader, is to convince a majority of people in my state or my country that the criticism is wrong. Not to use the power of government that was given to me by the people to punish someone for that. And believe me, you'd hear Republicans speaking differently if the governor was Charlie Crist instead of Ron DeSantis, and the legislation Crist had put forward was perceived as being liberal legislation, and Disney spoke out and said, well, I think this is too liberal, and I think it's not in line with Disney's values. And Chris used the government to bang on Disney. Republicans all across the country would be going berserk and saying this is an overreach. Why? Because it's done by someone who's a Republican to be say this is okay. I think that's not a conservative position. I think he's wrong. I think it makes, rightfully makes a lot of people question his judgment and his maturity. <laughs> so... Very interesting. Wanted to play that in particular because we covered the DeSantis Disney kerfuffle, which is ongoing. Interesting, Melissa. Like the the um, I I think the first argument is the most effective in a Republican primary, which is that you know the argument that DeSantis got outmaneuvered that he got taken by Disney. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, uh, that I think is, uh, if that perception takes hold, that really puts a dent in DeSantis trying to make himself out to be this, this warrior who takes on the public health establishment, who takes on establishment generally and wins. If, if, uh, I think his opponents could, could make hay out of the fact that, that Disney seemed to outmaneuver him. The second argument, though, 
I don't know how much of a constituency there is in the Republican Party for this sort of principled, conservative, free market. Mm-hmm. The you know the government shouldn't have a heavy hand. The government should like take take whatever corporations have to give because free speech um, and uh, and like the. Uh, uh, they should be let let off the hook because they provide jobs. Like, I, I, I'm not sure how much play that that gets. It was though. You take Trump off the stage, and obviously he's not. But mm-hmm. hypothetically, you yeah. take Trump off the stage, and it's amazing how much politics does go back to like actual ideological differences Mm -hmm. you know you could imagine a debate stage where DeSantis and Christie are actually arguing about the use of government power and whether uh uh you know all of the dynamics of that case that we unpacked in a previous episode you could imagine that as a possibility with Trump on the debate stage is sort of playing out that argument in a rational way, uh, doesn't seem within the realm of of possibility. I don't think Christie's argument sort of carries the day. I think DeSantis sort of wins that argument in a Republican primary context. But very interesting one gives a sense of um, how much fire is trained on DeSantis in terms of opposition yes. research, in terms of others sort of viewing DeSantis as the one to go after. Um, I think I think people think that there's a chance that he could be dissuaded from running if he realizes that it's not, that he won't only have to worry about Trump, but that others in the field will attack him as well. Like he's not going to have a straight run at Trump, um, which is very interesting. And to your point, Melissa, Suggest that things are aligning in such a way that you're you're going to have a whole bunch of candidates fighting to be the alternative to Trump and destroying one another, <laughs> you know, yeah, b- and uh, still, before and anyone ever gets to touching Trump. And yeah. still not finding a lane where the narrative is catchy and gimmicky enough with actually staying true to whatever ideologies that they actually hold and what, however it is that they actually want to govern and while also getting the same amount of airtime as Trump, who's has you know, is in the middle of an indictment and says the next you know ridiculous thing, um, uh, it's such a for I believe for a Christie for a DeSantis for anybody who's already jumped in the number one issue that any of these candidates will have will be comms will be communication will be how do I actually you know get all the interviews, you know, get all the sound bites on, you know, the nightly news, uh, you know, even like Pence, I know that he has name recognition, obviously, in his party, and he has facial recognition, and like all that, he was the vice president. But, um, you know, Pence, one of his problems has been that he's always been sort of ca- characterized as a bit more boring. And I mean, that's completely, <laughs> completely true. Like, it, he, you know, he was the governor of Indiana, and was always like the more serious one to his his running mate, Trump. Um, 
it's just, I think it's just a communications thing where where the next video that we're gonna watch is actually where I feel like there's the most potential um, for this particular candidate should they actually get in. Um, jump in, I should say. Um, I think there's the most potential on the comm side of things to create a lane for him, but it, the threading of the needle against Trump for the Republican Party right now, again, unless Trump takes himself down, um, is just so, so particular. It's so, I just view it as so difficult at this moment, but let's, let's listen to this, to this clip. Let's um, do it. On this day, April 12, 1861, in this harbor, the first shots of the Civil War were fired. And our country faced the defining moment. Would we truly be one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all? America's soul was put to the test, and we prevailed. Today, our country is once again being tested. Once again, our divisions run deep, and the threat to our future is real. Joe Biden and the radical left have chosen a culture of grievance over greatness. They're promoting victimhood instead of personal responsibility, and they're indoctrinating our children to believe we live in an evil country. And all too often, when they get called out for their failures, they weaponize race to divide us, to hold on to their power. When I fought back against their liberal agenda, they called me a prop, a token, because I disrupt their narrative. I threaten their control. They know the truth of my life disproves their lies. See, I was raised by a single mother in poverty. The spoons in our apartment were plastic, not silver. But we had faith, we put in the work, and we had an unwavering belief that we too could live the American dream. I know America is a land of opportunity, not a land of oppression. I know it because I've lived it. That's why it pains my soul to see the Biden liberals attacking every rung of the ladder that helped me climb. If the radical left gets their way, millions more families will be trapped in failing schools, crime-ridden neighborhoods, and crushing inflation. Not on my watch. This is personal to me. I will never back down in defense of the conservative values that make America exceptional. And that's why I'm announcing my exploratory committee for president of the United States. I will defend the Judeo-Christian foundation our nation is built on and protect our religious liberty. I will stand up to communist China and restore opportunities for hard-working Americans to thrive and prosper. I will fight to give every parent a choice in education so their children have a better chance in life. I will defend our borders and our neighborhood streets, and I will protect our most fundamental right, the right to life itself. I bear witness that America can do for anyone what she's done for me. But we must rise up to the challenges of our time. This is a fight we must win. And that will take faith. Faith in God, faith in each other, and faith in America. God bless our United States of America, and God bless you. 
So that's Tim Scott announcing an exploratory committee to run for president. Uh, so the like legal technical significance of that is that he could raise money that could then go mm-hmm. with through the exploratory committee. So that's one of the reasons why people do this. I also think in his case in particular, I think he really is exploring. Uh, I really think that that message, that three minute message, is he wants to see what kind of traction it it gets. So much. I mean, I'm. If I was teaching a college course, I'd break that video down line by line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many interesting things. It's interesting, Melissa, that he uh, goes after Biden liberals. Others have sort of strayed from uh, making Biden sort of, sort of. They haven't felt the attacks on on Biden have resonated because uh, uh, people generally don't think that haven't bought the Biden's radical uh interesting that he decides to mm-hmm. to make Biden the the sort of tip of the spear uh, but the most interesting thing to me and I think this was intended I'm surprised I haven't seen more reporting writing on this to the extent that I think I might have to write about it and I'm talking about it here on the podcast uh, this announcement video for the exploratory committee is the first thing I've seen from any candidate that suggests running in a lane that's not in reaction to Trump, that isn't seeking to be, uh, isn't seeking to sort of split the difference with Trump, but is carving out its own lane. And interestingly, I think the, the the somewhat subtle but I think obvious message is uh, Tim Scott saying I can run on the same kind of message that Biden used to, to defeat mm-hmm. Trump in 2020. You'll notice in the first he in the first the 45 seconds of that video, nation. exactly mm-hmm. right. He refers to the soul of the nation. Like this is not, I mean, it's not like rocket science uh, uh, stuff, what he's suggesting there. He, he is saying, uh, I can take this message and, and I'm the person who has uh, the potential of running as a coherent candidate in both the primary and carrying that through in the general in a winning way. And uh, I think I think Republicans ought to consider that. Uh, I, I I also think part of what he did, which I'm not such a fan of, was he did use a lot of sort of buzzwords and a lot of sort of Fox that's, News. That's li- I literally, Michael, in my head, I was just like, he he he's the Fox News candidate at this point for me, and that like his rhetoric sounds like Fox News writ large. Um, so not specifically like Tucker Carlson, like I would say like has like more towards like Trump and yeah, style yeah, yeah. of narr- narration, but he, like, I want to call him in my head, the Fox news candidate at this point. And my thing for, for Senator Scott, like, you know, <laughs> if I were Republican, if I were, you know, messaging strategist and like really believed in like, I would be dying to join his team trying to figure out how he can message these things but actually come up with his own 
sound bites, his own ways of talking about these things that will signal to people that this is actually what I mean, but also something that he can start making a brand and making it his own. Um, and plus, like, you know, I know exactly where, like, radical left. We know exactly where that language comes from. We know where it goes with people's heads. It creates a demonization of the other. Like, I don't want him going down that route. But also, I do believe that he actually believes these things. Like, he's shown in his record that this is actually pretty much in line with how he has run as senator, how he has governed as senator, like, how he has, um, you know, uh, done things for his constituents, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, if I were... If I were in the Republican game, I would be just clamoring to join his team to help him with this messaging because I do think that there is a possibility that his team could thread a needle that actually creates a true lane for him to continue to be himself but also be an actual viable candidate for him to rise above the fray for him to get you know all the sound bites and like the clicks online and stuff like that so that the media will pay attention to him, et cetera, et cetera. Well, yeah, I mean, mean, so what he's trying to do is um, trying to show the Republican base, folks who are going to turn out in primaries, uh, that he sees the problems they see. That's why he uses the language. And to your point, like I do think, he generally agrees that the things that they think are problems, he thinks are problems. Like, I'm not saying this to sort of um, suggest that he's ju- he's simply doing it to pander. But I think in terms of what he's trying to do, I think, is show that you could be concerned about these things. You could oppose these things. Uh, but to, uh, to do it in a way that is framed positively Mm -hmm. and i think the big question for him is uh, do do enough voters want that or are voters drawn in a republican context to um to a sort of disempowered uh, messaging and sort of a, a white knight sort of sort of messaging, and and that's that's going to be that's going to be the test. You know, you wonder if just to read the tea leaves, he says that you know liberals promote victimization. You you wonder if that's foreshadowing the kind of response he'd have to not only Trump but DeSantis that they are actually. By by inflating um, the threat of liberals or whatever that uh, that that it's it's promoting a kind of of victimization. Meanwhile, as Tim Scott says in the video, you know, with good values and and you know he he lived the American dream uh, even though he was raised in poverty. You know, it's an interesting interesting dynamic that you start to see develop. So we'll see. We'll see if Tim Scott gets yeah, in. It's basically the the sort of difference. Like it's, you know, a Trump and DeSantis, like the whole warrior aspect is kind of like both those candidates. And we've seen Trump obviously do it um, and win, um, you know, the I will fight for you. Whereas Tim Scott could actually take the line of 
I'm going to fight for you because I actually embody it. Like he can actually tell a story of growing up in poverty and achieving the American dream. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it reminds me. Uh, DeSantis's super PAC put out an ad uh, over the last few days that made it was all centered around the fact that DeSantis was the grandson of a steelworker. worker. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, it's like, wow, really really pushing it and they use all this like very nuanced language i think it was something like you know he he has blue collar roots um uh-huh. <laughs> and it's it's like you know okay if if you have to go on ancestry.com to <laughs> to find to, those to roots. find those roots yeah i'm not not too sure <laughs> uh, but <laughs> that's those are the clips from 2024 uh, from the past, uh, uh, basically from the past week. Tim Scott's announcement was from a little bit, uh, a little bit um, earlier than that. Um, but I, I think we're going to start. I think Biden's announcement this week is going to lead to some Republican responses of folks jumping in. I don't mm-hmm. think. I don't think May, we're going to get through May without a final answer from Pence. We'll see what uh, Senator Scott decides to do as he's traveling across uh, primary and caucus states. Uh, but but this this uh, this race is is developing. Where I wanted to close, we have one more audio clip for this episode. Wanted to share a clip from Congressman Jeff Jackson uh, from North Carolina. Uh, Jeff Jackson is known as one of the savviest, uh, one, one of like the social media savvy new members of Congress. He's big on TikTok and Instagram and has kind of been doing these videos. His sort of the, 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 the context for his videos, the brand of his videos is sort of new congressman who's sharing what he's learning about mm-hmm. and, and it, it's a really attractive thing he's got tons of followers and uh, the the videos are are um sometimes uh, actually insightful mm-hmm. wanted to play this video uh from from congressman jackson uh because i i like the point he makes I'm still brand new to Congress. I've only been there 100 days. And I don't know if I'm not supposed to say this out loud, but it's true and important. And if you don't know this, you need to. It's really clear from working there for just a few months that most of the really angry voices in Congress are totally faking it. These people who have built their brands around being perpetually outraged, it's an act. I've seen a bunch of examples. Here's one. I've been in committee meetings that are open to the press, and committee meetings that are closed. The same people who act like maniacs during the open meetings are suddenly calm and rational during the closed ones. Why? Because there aren't any cameras in the closed meetings, so their incentives are different. What I've seen is that members of Congress are surrounded by negative incentives. There are rewards for bad behavior. You know what the big one is? Being able to reach you. The big thing that modern media and modern politicians have learned is that if they can keep you angry, they'll hold your attention and they both want your attention. So if you're a politician and you show certain media outlets that you can help them keep their audience angry, they'll give you their audience. 
And because so many politicians are willing to play that game, now they're in competition with each other to see how fake angry they can be. So that's real bad. But here's something good. What I love about this, about communicating with you directly, is that the incentives are different. They can be positive. They can be about speaking to you with respect and real information and in a normal tone of voice. Because if I can talk to you directly, I don't have to yell. And if you don't have to yell to be heard, the whole conversation changes. So going forward, when you hear some enraged member of Congress say something absurd, your first question shouldn't be, how can they possibly believe that? It should be, do we think they actually do? Because they probably don't. And for those who want to see politics look less like WWE, I will keep you posted. So the end of the video there, the because I can speak directly to you, uh, I, I don't I don't buy all of that. I mean, one thing about the way he's speaking to us is that no one can reply to him, and mm-hmm. there's no one. In, so, mm-hmm. so kind of let that let that part of the argument go. Uh, the The core point he's making, which is not a new or novel one, uh, but that. The anger, much of the anger we see in politics that is sort of suggested as uh, our representatives reflecting the anger of their constituents and, and oh, they're channeling the, uh, is, is fake. <laughs> and like, I don't need Jeff Jackson to tell me that, uh, uh. You, 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 it, it's, uh, you, you can see through it. Uh, but to have someone like Jeff Jackson sort of point that out, I think is helpful. Um, I was interested in some of the Twitter chatter in response to this video. I shared this video. And I'll be honest, it reminded me, uh, so, so some sort of like conservatives or independents sort of wrote things that were either skeptical of you know, Jeff Jackson's communication style suggesting, well, you know, he's putting on a front by speaking, you know, reasonably or kind of having this this nice new congressman shtick. And then others were like, oh, he plays nice, but look at his, you know, look at his votes. And Melissa, it just hit me today. It reminds me of the progressive criticism of Ben Sass. And any time I'd oh, say yeah. something nice about uh-huh. Ben Sass, yeah. which is, I mean, something we have to realize is that there are particularly folks on the extremes on both sides and those who have an investment in a vitriolic politics, they are terrified that someone might show that you could be a good person in politics and mm-hmm. be successful. Oh, yeah. no, And there's... so they go after... They go after mm-hmm. the, and look, my, my point is, okay, criticize them for their votes. But what you can't criticize them for is uh, uh, making a um, destructive, uh, uh, making a destructive input into our politics because they're yelling at people all the time. They're denigrating people all the time. They're uh, they're uh, inspiring fear and anger among their voters. So d- don't deflect off of well, you know, it, it, 
it really doesn't matter. You know, he's he's voting with Democrats or Ben Sass voted with Republicans 80 whatever percent of the time. It's like, well, that's we're not talking about that now. Not even Jeff Jackson's talking about that. They're talking about the the um, the rhetoric of our politics. They're talking about the culture of our politics. And surely uh, that argument can stand. And then, yeah, let's have let's have the policy debates. I mean, I, you've talked about this a lot, all the time, about just how sick our politics is. We're at the point where, um, because uh, anger and hyperbole and all that stuff is just the default way of acting, that um, other these folks know that when there are politicians who do use a measured tone, not just like actual tone, but like measured like words, um, measured body language, like the whole package... Um, that that is to be distrusted. Right. Um, that that right. is what our politics is built around now, that if you're anybody who is acting like that, that can't possibly be true. Yes. That's just a front to get you to trust them, which is very just, that's a funny way of thinking about it. Um, I mean, I, th- I, I think about it all the time because I think about it in social situations too. It, it Something just brought to mind a... Um, a working situation that I had a few years ago where we had this brand new coworker and this person came on within the first week was just so kind, so, so nice, so kind, just a great person. And the amount of people in that office that I would hear over the water, you know, the quote unquote water cooler say, she, f- is that, is that person fake? Are yeah. they faking it? Is this not real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember standing there just kind of gawking going, we can't trust that a nice person coming in is actually nice. Right. That they mean what they say. And I remember that was one of the biggest lessons a few years ago about socially, like how far down we have gone <laughs> in yeah. terms of how we trust one another when it comes to people who actually try to embody any kind of fruit, fruit of the spirit, but especially in politics. Um, and it's, it's interesting, like the critiques that that this per, that this you know congressman would get wouldn't be more along like the ideological lines of like, oh he's just who the in this I guess the votes criticism is like the one like ideological thing. But you were saying like you can actually talk about what that person is voting about, but the actual yeah. How does that offset the fact that he's that, that he's yeah, speaking reasonably exactly? You know, like, like, those speaking, are two different things. Speaking in a way that's that's civil. <laughs> yes. Um. So. We already know that the whole civility conversation is now just a land, just full of landmines. Um, it, which just, is again indicative of the of the problem <laughs> that mm-hmm. that that uh, the notion of civility is suspect, yes. but not the fake anger. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, anger is deemed to be somehow more genuine mm-hmm. uh, than uh, than respect for the people you're talking to, respect for your constituents. That's like a, that's a messed up place to be. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I want to say, like when you take this into politics, the request is not trust Jeff Jackson or trust mm. Ben Sass. No, the point isn't, oh, these guys seem nice. These politicians seem nice. Like, tr- trust them. Uh, no, like, the, the main reason I want to have this conversation um, is not so, is not because I think Jeff Jackson should be the next 
senator from North Carolina or that Ben Sass should be the next president. The, 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 the point is not to compare politicians. It's to say, maybe let's be a little more skeptical of the politicians who seem to always find ways to use anger and fear for their self-aggrandizement. It, it's just such a insane place to be where there's all of this suspicion and these defense mechanisms against politicians who speak uh, civilly and speak with respect and yet the guard is completely down for politicians who have the quote-unquote air of authenticity to them, which translates into uh, they, uh, they swear they, uh, they're angry at the right people at the right times in the most, in, in, and, and perform that anger. So, so, so that's the, the, the point isn't, oh, what a wonderful guy Jeff Jackson is. It's like, no, it's like maybe be a, a little less susceptible to politicians who do use anger as a mobilization tactic. That's right. And the last couple of things that I wanted to say um, specifically about this Congress, this congressman, it just hit me because it was, it was, it's been bothering me since uh, you pointed out this video a few days ago. I don't know what it is about his voice or his cadence, maybe the accent. I'm not sure, but he reminds me of Pete Buttigieg a lot, the way that he talks, um, which I find very interesting. And I think there's interesting parallels because Pete kind of does this sort of like straight to camera, like very frank, uses sort of logical arguments, not big words, kind of just shoots it straight with. And that's why a lot of people really liked him during, for the, um, the 2020 campaign. And the second thing was that Jackson, I think, has really found something here because I just looked up his TikTok. He has 1.8 million followers, and that particular video has 4.6 million views and 1.1 million likes. And so you think about the people who are on TikTok right now who might be voting for the first time coming up, that they're seeing something like this, that it's, it's really interesting. And, and what's so interesting about that is um, you could read all sorts of partisan implications into what he's saying, but he doesn't state them explicitly. Mm -mm. Uh -huh. If you didn't know his partisan background, you wouldn't know if he was talking about the squad or if he was talking about Marjorie Taylor exactly. Greene. And so it's interesting. TikTok, predominantly young people mm -hmm. um, uh, were, were watching and uh, attracted to that video that, that did not play to sort of the... The, the most base sort of partisan mm -hmm. instinct that did that did not, you know, put up doctored images of, mm -hmm. you know, the the politician you most dislike in Congress and, and say, you know, this person is is, you know, uh, the, the, the reason why <laughs> your student loans have make like that. It, it is it is so interesting that there is an audience for that when we're so often told Oh, you you can't uh, you can't mobilize people around uh, around um, civility, or you can't mobilize people without playing to our earlier conversation. You can't mobilize people without playing the fear card or the anger card. What no, actually, Jackson is is explicitly not not playing the anger card, and and uh, at least on social media. Uh, has more of a following than than uh, than a lot of the Republican candidates who think they're going to be the next president seem to have. Yeah, and the other thing is that what he does do here, 
we know which generation most, you know, the biggest generation on TikTok, which is Gen Z. And we know that their distrust in government is very, very high. Um, and by sort of mm. talking directly to them in this way, not just on this video, because it's the particular um, subject matter of this point. video is about trust in government and trust in me. Yes, that's a good Being point. like what they're doing, you can't trust it because they're doing it for the cameras and they're doing it for, you know, all the clicks and all the sound bites. But then looking at, I'm looking at the rest of this where he seems to just, again, be sort of shooting it straight, Pete Buttigiegian style. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if Buttigieg I'm... Buttigieg, <laughs> yeah. Where um, it's just particular issues and it seems that he just seems to sort of just be sitting down at a table a lot of the time, shooting it straight with people and using pretty simple language and pretty logical arguments that what he's trying to do for himself as like obviously as a new congressperson but then obviously when he chooses to run again is that especially with this particular generation which will come in more and more into voting most of them can vote now but i mean a few of them are still too young um is that he's creating a sort of bridge of trust that just yeah and know, oh boy like are really there are people right who don't like that no 100 <laughs> so, nothing gets under their skin more than the fact that this guy comes across as like relatively decent uh, <laughs> uh and so uh yeah wanted to play that clip uh i think that's all we have for this all, episode folks. thanks for listening we'll be back next week uh until then bye I still wanna turn out